Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to Energy and Efficiency with Emily. This week we have Ben on. If you've been lucky enough to join us on BS and Beer, you've seen Ben a couple of times. He's a big leader in building science here in our main community. So we love to have him on and talk to him. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into the building industry? Um, okay, well, hello everybody. Um, I am, or I have the odd distinction of being a second generation or possibly even a third generation high performance builder, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, my grandfather and my father got heavily involved in super insulative and passive solar building uh, in the late seventies. And my dad was building some of the, you know, the, the first high performance homes in the country around the time of my birth. So uh, I've been brought up in this. Um, I've done my best after leaving school to try and avoid a career in the trades um, but people kept wanting to hand me money on Friday for putting my tool belt on all week, and I was okay with that. So here I am. You said you went to school so that you could keep out of the trade. So what did what were you really passionate about? What, what did you think you wanted to get into so you weren't building? Coming out of school, I wasn't sure really what I wanted to get into. I was actually uh, an awful student. I dropped out of high school early. Um, and just, you know, construction had always been there, was always part of my life, you know, weekends and evenings, I was helping dad move lumber and, you know, just the normal stuff that a, a kid of a contractor does. Um, but I didn't think I, I really wanted to get into it. But as, you know, time progressed and I had to make money to pay bills and support my extracurricular activities as a young man, um, I kept working at it, you know, doing everything from site cleanup when I was young to working on framing crews and doing renovations. And then the years just kind of started to tick by. And eventually I got to a point where I, uh, I started to find an actual interest and passion in what I was doing other than just, you know, being somebody doing the labor on the job site and started um, picking up where my father had left off with high performance building and starting to really latch onto some of the new research that Stebrick and, all of his colleagues were doing to kind of push the practices my dad was doing in the early 80s kind of into the 20th and 21st century. And at that point, I kind of had a shift in my career where I went from just, you know, uh, being a carpenter for a paycheck to um, looking at it as a career. And um, it's kind of just taken off from there. Um, I guess I have the distinction. One of the things that puts me in this position of being able to speak on topics is, is I'm a little bit obsessive about learning. Um, I have a hard time shutting my brain off. So I'm constantly trying to dive deeper into all aspects of whatever I'm working on. I tend to find a topic and just go and absorb as much as I possibly can, whether or not it actually relates to what I'm doing in the field. It at least informs my choices. That's such an important point. Um, I've talked to Matt on here. I had one of his students on here as part of his construction trade program in high school. You know, you said earlier you were a terrible student, but you were a terrible traditional student maybe because you didn't find what you were really excited about. I, I wasn't being challenged by, by the traditional form of education is really what it came down to. 
it's the same thing as where, you know, you see these kids and they say they hate to read, but they're just being made to read, you know, what they, the curriculum says every kid in third grade should have to read. And then, you know, you get a Superman comic book, something or other, or, 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 or building remote control cars or something. Exactly. And there's just so much interest in that and they'll read voraciously about it. I mean, my father-in-law is in his late seventies. And when I first started dating my husband, 15 years ago, he's like, oh yeah, I don't read. And now he reads all the time because he started to discover World War II books. And that was what he really found interesting. And he didn't know he liked to read because he just thought reading was all these other other books. And so I think learning is very much like that. I said, I believe on another podcast, it could have been on BS in Beer, um, that too many kids go to college now because that's what we say, hey, this is what you should do instead of spending a little bit of time to figure out what are you super passionate about? There could be some awesome jobs out there that are just as detailed, just as important, have just as much continuing education and learning, like you said. I mean, I'm always impressed when we get on on BSM Beer the vast amount of knowledge that you have. So when you first said, oh, it's a terrible student, I thought, what? That doesn't jive with the Ben that I know. <laughs> like you, you just have this huge amount of knowledge because you've now found this thing that you find super exciting. Yeah, that's it. And it's also, I guess I was kind of lucky in the fact that, you know, being second generation, being around a lot of this stuff, I picked up a lot of it through osmosis, you know, little things you and my dad teaching me about thermal bridging and you don't need to add that extra cripple under the sill there because you're, you can fit more insulation if you don't put it there. But those are little things that I took for granted as we were building houses and remodeling houses. But then as I started to uh, dive in and things started to gel, it all started to kind of click and then it's, it's snowballed from there. And I, I, I guess that kind of put me in a, a good standing to be able to um, dive even further into it versus somebody that's just kind of, getting their feet wet into high performance building or building science. Yeah, that was one of the most fun things that happened um, on the project. I did a community project where the RSU nine students in their technical high school trade program built a high performance house. It was a home replacement project. And um, we did this high performance house and they learned about it in high school. And they were in awe of just some of the simple things that they did differently. And the thought process there was they just have this extra level of knowledge. Maybe they didn't understand all of it. You know, if you listen to Matt's podcast, he's like, I can't tell you how many times I had to tell a kid what a continuous bead of cock was, you know, but they're going to take that on and, and get into trade programs and then be like, Hey, wait a second. You know, even if it just triggers that you, you took for granted, you know, you didn't even know any different. It's the same. I grew up in a farming community. I lived farm to table before tar farm to table was a thing. I didn't even know it was a thing. It was just a thing, you know, it's just, just what, what, we did. what you did. I was exactly. in the same boat with a lot of the early building practices that I was taught. Yeah. And so um, pretty awesome that, that your dad was doing that in, you know, in the seventies, because that was a great time for high performance and then the 80s happened and people sort of stopped doing it you know and as, as, as did my dad you know he kept a lot of the same principles and stuff as he was doing uh you know general contracting work going through the 80s and the 90s but you know there was no there was no market driving force for high performance or high efficiency um and that's 
kind of how I picked up on it is I had, you know, learned all the basics from him. And then I, you know, stumbled across Stebrick and a lot of his contemporaries and started learning like, oh, hey, guys are actually still pushing this forward. You know, it didn't mm-hmm. stop at these Larson trusses and vapor barriers a third of the way through the wall that my dad was doing. And there's, you know, they've expanded on that. That really kind of grabbed my attention. I remember my grandfather was a contractor when I was growing up and he did large scale uh, commercial projects, but he also had the first solar panel on his roof that I can remember. It's like, wait a second, he's doing something that's, that's different. And they did it anyway. And when he built his house, he did things a little bit differently than, you know, what they were supposed to. And then you see the the last 40 years what's happened and now with all of us having to stay at home and people posting pictures of you know being able to see the sediment uh filtered on the bottom of the venice canal or being able to see downtown los angeles from the getty center maps that they're showing where it was incredibly bad and now everybody's had to stay home now obviously a stay-at-home mandate is not possible for us you know moving forward into the community but hopefully it will garner some interest from people to say like oh hey wait a second because if they had just kept up with the set now the 70s got a bad rap because they tried tightening things and then they caused mold issues Mm -hmm. and people said We've been building since you know the 1800s and we don't have houses with mold in them we're not going to do that i I had to battle that whole, you know, sick house phenomenon stigma for for years. And thankfully, it seems to be letting up for the most part in contractors that I speak to. But yeah, that's, you know, my dad and uh, God bless him for bearing that cross for so long. Thankfully, he was, you know, uh, paying attention to the building science that was available to them really at the time and doing a good job. And none of the projects he built ever had any of those issues. But that was a, you know, that was a huge stigma on the industry for people that were doing groundbreaking work. People went reverse the other way, but you imagine like if they had taken what we've really pushed forward and started talking about more so in the last 10 years with ventilation and control and tightening buildings and the building codes are getting tighter. Had they done that 40 years ago, would we be in the same climate position we're in now? Maybe yes, maybe no, I don't know. Maybe it had to happen in, in this order in order for us to, to get smart with it. But um, somebody else said to me recently, they said, it's amazing to me the lack of understanding of health and ventilation for most building professionals and homeowners of the you know indoor air quality in their house, which was part of the reason why I recorded with Allison Bales a couple weeks ago and, and labeled it uh, one of his old blog posts was, are you breathing possum? Because that gets people's attention, you know? When you bring up the fact that if they're not going to install mechanical ventilation that a lot of them are pushing back against, uh, that you're going to be breathing through, you know, fiberglass and mouse droppings and dead mouse carcasses and mold and all of that. Yeah, it does kind of... It kind of gets your attention. Yeah, pause, yeah. And people really start to understand about what's at stake. I thought it was really interesting. Um, It was probably a bad timing for this meme, although it happened happened to pop up on one of the social accounts, was there was somebody wearing the, the sort of respirator hood over their face and they had the hose connected to uh, dirty fiberglass insulation in a wall. And they said, you know, like, this is what you're breathing. And when you see that visual, all of a sudden it starts to make a whole lot more sense. And that's one of the questions I ask a lot if I'm doing a presentation or if I'm in my class, I'm like, how many people have been in their attics? And not a lot of people raise their hands on that one. Um, And I'm like, go in your attic, come back, tell me if you want to breathe all the stuff that's in your attic. Because that's when you say your house needs to breathe, that's where the air is coming from. And 
we wonder why we have these latent health issues and yet we have a lot of sick structures still you know maine has a lot of old housing stock that have dirt basements and water problems and radon issues and mold issues and and they're still tightening them up and not addressing that because they're thinking oh i don't need mechanical ventilation because my house breathes really that's not the case and do we have any metrics for you to test that and so it's really I'd love the building community, both architects and builders, uh, first of all, to work together as, as integrated design. But, um, you know, I'd like us all to increase our knowledge base. Like, what, what don't we know? Take it back from the, and what came up a lot on the BS and beer discussion is take it out of the consumer economic decision to change the way we build our houses. Um, yeah, if you want to put fancy finishes on the inside of your house, that's, you know, go for it. But the building structure, the way we build should be, you know, something that the building community says, this is what we have to provide for you in order to be doing the right thing. I think you touched on something really important right there. And that's what don't we know, um, especially when it comes to indoor air quality and occupant health and ventilation rates is the, the truth is, is we don't know a lot right now. Right. And that's kind of a, a shocking thing. You know, I had up until a couple of years ago operated under the assumption that, you know, people have been doing research and studies and that there were numbers that we could go to that would say, yeah, this is what's good. But then you start digging into it. And I was fortunate enough to go to some of the main indoor air quality council uh, conferences and see some of these people that are doing the research, like Brett Singer, uh, uh, LBNL, and uh, forgive me, I'm based on some of the others, and Stebrick. Um, and you see them say, like, we're kind of guessing at this point. It really shows that we don't know yet. So hopefully we do as an industry start pulling together and questioning this stuff because then it will drive funding towards those programs. And we'll have third party, also private sector programs that are starting to do this research and we can start getting some answers. Because right now we're kind of just throwing darts blindfolded and hoping that we're hitting the target. Right. Um, which we're definitely doing better doing what we're doing than not doing anything but are we doing too much are we not doing enough are we doing it in the wrong places we don't know yet but um that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying absolutely and that brings up a really valid point which ties it back to the current coronavirus is you know one of the things that came up is you know with these ventilation systems or whatever what can we be doing or you know wearing the masks and respiratory and we don't know and we don't know how many people have had it because we haven't tested everybody and done all of that the same goes for air quality testing in houses too is we have a sample of this but it's only on the ones that we've tested well how many of your houses do you know that you've tested and you know where are the people in in the field saying hey this is important so like we've tested one of our houses and now going forward coming out of this coronavirus and people working from home and everybody being home and their houses not really being set up for you know being here full-time occupancy. Full occupancy that's something that i'm saying as an architect like i want to start doing this in every single one of my houses let's start getting those data points let's find out and you know let's help fund some of that research so they can test because you know the who says this is a viable and then the epa says this is a viable number and then you know somebody else has done testing and you're right we just don't know and we we hope we're doing good but that also doesn't help somebody that maybe has a sensitivity to it either so 
we on the on the micro scale in our projects have been pushing recently we've been implementing on the past couple of new builds we're putting in some measure of iaq monitoring mm -hmm. into the buildings um one just so that we can start collecting some data on these things so that we can look and as our knowledge progresses we can see how we're doing and two it's also a, a quality assurance measure for us to see that uh the interior conditions are within the range of what we're hoping them to be right now and i'll tell you one thing uh, you know i pride myself on thinking that i do pretty good work and I, my assemblies are good and i oversee my subcontractors that they're doing good work we found things that we thought should be functioning properly that weren't so if you know if you don't test you don't know you know jake bruton has that great thing you know trust but verify and it's absolutely true. You know, it, it, you can't just guess that all of your systems are working. You have to be commissioning. You have to be monitoring. You have to be testing. And people, you know, it's unfortunate that we're in an industry that is so driven by the lowest cost because people recoil against those things thinking that, oh, it's going to cost more. It's going to cost me money. I can't do those things. We're talking about fractions of a percent of a total job cost, even on a pretty, you know, moderate scale job. So I don't see any reason that you can't exercise your due diligence and implement these measures to, you know, keep track of how your project's actually doing. Well, and I think that the one thing that we don't talk about in our industry is long-term costs, you know, uh, both um, the carbon and economic cost of processing, manufacturing, extracting the products that we use in our structures, the cost to, to actually build, which is what people seem so concerned about you know it's the probably the most expensive thing you'll ever buy in your lifetime people think it's an asset it's not it's a liability you know until and they we don't talk about the long-term lifespan of you know how long will that product last in the structure itself you know because some some projects uh, products have longer uh, longevity how long how much will it cost you to live in it but what are the health costs of you know building a, a poor house and none of that is very quantifiable yet but you know how much are we contributing to our poor health because of what we've done in our built environment and so there's a much longer cost to to be associated than just what's it cost for Ben to show up and put this structure up tomorrow everybody gets hung up on this upfront cost of construction thing, you know, and it's just as the state of our industry right now. And that's really missing the point. Um, so high performance, high efficiency, whatever you want to call it, it has this connotation that it has to cost more. And yeah, it often does cost more. It's often marginal depending on what kind of measures you're taking. But people are missing out on the fact that we're not just talking about energy here. We need to stop looking at this as energy. As much as you and I love to, you know, look at the R values and see how we can tune things and get the best possible energy efficiency, what we're getting hand in hand when we're building these energy efficient buildings is, is we're getting buildings that are more healthy, more comfortable, and more durable. So these are the things that we need to be paying attention to. And if you start talking to people on those topics, the dollar signs start leaving their eyes pretty quickly and they start thinking, oh, wait a second, you know, I'm going to have a building that I might not have to paint for the rest of my lifetime because they used a back ventilated cladding on it. Or I'm going to have a building that my asthmatic child's going to have a better quality of life in because there's no air leakage in it. I'm going to have a building that doesn't have rot and mildew issues because the moisture has been managed properly. 
Yeah, where, you know, the other thing that we don't take into account is the, I think it's a, the United States and Japan has this like every five year turnover thing that happens. And like the people will buy a house, they'll live in it for five years and they'll move. But, you know, what happened to creating communities where you want to stay in forever, you know, where you, where you don't want to move, where you plan for the space that works for your family? Now, I, I get it. You might have a large family and you might need a bigger house. And then when they all move out, you might need to downsize. That certainly makes sense to me. But when we're looking at things from longevity, like you've designed a house that you enjoy so much, you enjoy living in it. It looks here or does that or, um, you know, answers the question of your asthmatic child staying there. If you're not picking up and moving every five years, you're not using up those costs to do other things either like why do we feel like everything is so temporary but but yeah and but here's the clincher to that whole rationale too is is so we put energy and efficiency aside at the beginning and we looked at health durability and comfort now if we're spending five years or more in there chances are if we had a smart plan from the beginning with the efficiency measures we've done to the house our house is paid for those measures and we may have actually recouped some equity in that property from those measures that we took so now we've not only had a healthier, durable, more resilient building to live in, we have also had a building that's a lower cost building to operate for us to live in, and that's putting money back into our pockets. So we can sell it on the emotion, and then you can sell it on the, you know, the actual fiscal end of it. So I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that, but it's. I know. Well, that's what happens when you get on the uh, Emily's energy and efficiency uh, podcast (laughs) is I am usually preaching to other people who, who, who get it, but who are also just trying to get that message out to everybody else. And it's a point that bears repeating. It, it is a point that bears repeating and something that I love. Part of the reason why architects love to go to Italy and part of the reason why a lot of study abroad ha- happens there is because there's a lot of old stuff that people just cared for. They didn't push it down. It has a lot of quality. It still has quality of life hundreds of years later. They just take care of it and they maintain it. And that's something that we seem to miss out on. We're, we're missing out on the scale factor, the community factor, what we've pulled together. And maybe not everybody, and this is, this is where I get kind of the eye roll or whatever, but not the, the United States is kind of an interesting, really spread out. We don't have the European city public transportation thing that a lot of places have, but if not everybody can afford a single family home, we'll start building more multifamily structures. And so maybe building a high performance single family home because that's the right thing and that's the cost basis to jump into that is a luxury that not everybody can afford. So I, I know that's probably not a great point to bring up because people are just like, oh, architects are too expensive and builders. And it's part of the reason why we still have some really bad spec built developments that barely meet code because somebody says, well, okay, they won't build it for you, but I'll build it for you. And it's like, ah, oh, shoot. Like, how do we, how do we get past that? So it's not legal to build those things anymore it's coming it's coming it's coming and I, I i know that 
you know, more conservative leaning people will recoil against, you know, the state and the codes, forcing them to do things that they're not comfortable with. But there was also a time when we didn't have to have insulation in any of our houses and everybody seems pretty okay with that now. Um, So it's coming. Um, So you made a comment about how people love going to Italy and these European countries because of the fact that they have these old buildings that were maintained. Uh, I think, or at least I'm hopeful that we're going to start seeing more of that level of care return to our country. Um, you know, my grandparents' generation, that was definitely there, you know, the, the, the depression era, you know, that whole generation, they cared for their stuff. You know, my grandfather could fix anything with duct tape and bailing water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we're going to see that again. I, and I think that's evidenced by the fact that you see this resurgence in a broad interest in craft and maker spaces and you know the slow foods movement and all that people are starting to look at the everyday items in our lives and want things that are are quality uh, and, and want want things that bring a sense of benefit to their whole being in their lives on a daily basis and i think when you start diving into caring about inanimate objects on that level that you start having a sense of the need to care for those objects. So this is very speculative on my end, but I think this resurgence that we're seeing in craft and those types of things, it's going to start to drive our generation back towards that. Partially, I think also in recoil against the heavy level of technology and disconnection that we have in our society. Yeah, no, I think that's a very valid point. And it also brings up another point, which is that um, I saw somewhere somebody posted that, we're thinking about those things right now specifically because we're at home because apparently we do care about the environment and we care about our health but because our society is so stressed on productivity we're too busy to do anything about it which has been kind of the the thing but even before this whole virus i was starting to see more of a resurgence of a stay-at-home parent whether it's the husband or the wife because childcare has gotten so expensive it's almost easier for one parent to stay home like that is almost a better financial decision exactly and so we're we're right there yeah, yeah we're right there and it's a struggle at times, but it's it's worth it. Yeah, so I think we're starting to see some of that. It's like, you know, our grandparents' generation did that, and then they wanted to give better lives to our parents. And then our parents went through the whole, like, busy, 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 work, work, work. And then our next generation was, like, even more work on top of that. And then I think we started to say, hey, wait a second, what's really important? And... Uh, as great as the internet has been, especially now with being able to connect with people all over the country and being stuck at home, it also is visually a great marketing tool to sell you just everything you didn't know you needed or didn't have a problem with beforehand. And so, um, and this is me personal and wishful thinking, but I feel like if we had less stuff, we'd spend less time caring for the stuff that we had. We'd care more about the things that we actually had and we would connect with our communities. And I think there's a new level of, of being stuck at home and wanting to connect to the community. It's part of what, um, Patrice and I were already doing in Cumberland, which was we didn't build a subdivision, we built a community. We built five houses of like-minded people with a walking trail. 
they're building out a community garden. They have a yurt, you know, they just gather together. It's funny, you see pictures of them. Um, one of the, the women that lives in the development is a personal trainer. So you see her kids out there lugging heavy backpacks around, like they're getting their, their gym class in, you know, and it's, they created a community of people who liked the same thing, who kind of gathered around the same ideas. And I think coming out of this, we're going to find a lot more community resurgence, people wanting to connect to, instead of the, I get up, I go to work, I leave, I come home, I drive into my subdivision, the neighbor's house is 10 feet away, looks just like mine, I pull into my garage, I go inside, and I have no communication with my neighbor. I think we'll move out of that. And we had already started doing that, where you see the tiny house movement, all these people who are like, I just want a tiny house, I, I want to spend five minutes cleaning my house, not three hours on the weekend. And, you know, I can live with a three foot section of closet and have less clothing. And maybe I spend more on the pieces of clothing that I have, but they last a really long time and I don't have to have as many. So maybe priorities will shift. Maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. Um, but I hope you're right. <laughs> but I'd like to see us feel that way about our structures and our houses too, is, you know, we don't, need as much square footage if we have a really good design and design can start from a pre-designed plan that maybe gets personalized for your site i mentioned all the time it doesn't usually cost anything to orient itself you know it doesn't usually cost anything to do that now granted you could have a really unique site where that makes it very complicated but a good orientation on a site is usually free not just saying oh i don't know put it over there somewhere you know, within 75 feet of the which road. Is, which is, yeah, which is common. Right. Yeah, which is very common. Um, yeah, I, I think on a very macro level, I, I hope that's the direction you're headed. But I think on a micro level, I think we need to also understand that this is fiscally a smart choice for most people. Yes. And it doesn't have to be the over-the-top measures. You know, and if we're building these buildings that uh, are more resilient and more durable and require less maintenance and cost less to operate, it's going to, you know, maybe lower some of that pressure on people's need to work so much. Yeah. Um, so there is, you know, there's a, there's a, a holistic, you know, outcome to it. And I don't want to get too touchy feely and soft with it because a lot of people recoil against that, but it's, you're creating a, a whole healthy environment micro macro for the people that live in that home for for their existence and for their life yeah and you say touchy-feely but that's how i describe all of my projects with my clients when i first start talking about it and that's actually what's important and and actually mm -hmm. a little bit difficult for us who are super nerdy and into the building science aspect of it to remember not to talk all the technical aspects like we get that that makes us better builders and architects it's cool it makes us want to be builders and architects but then wanting to get your clients on board is often a conversation about how do you want to feel in your space? You know, what's, mm -hmm. what's the, what's the thought you want to have when you come home? How do you use your space? I mean, I, um, I say this a lot and I think none of you believe me, but I play a really good extrovert on the BS and beer show and the podcast, but I'm an introvert. I like my space. I like to have this place where I can come and hide. You know, I, I almost like my little office where I can come in here and I can close the door and it's just like me and it's quiet. And, um, but we have plenty of 
clients who are extroverts and they have gathering spaces and they don't care how big the bedroom is because the kitchen dining room connection or the kitchen living room dining room connection is so much more important. And so that's how we tend to design and, and to save money on windows is let's put less windows in and let's put them in the right place. And let's make sure that that window takes advantage of the view or the cross ventilation or Maybe not all of them need to open. One of the one of the biggest things that, I, and I brought this up on the BS and beer conversation. One of the biggest places that you can gain ground in building a better project is upfront before you even start to do anything on the site. You know, a a, a pinch of planning upfront will save you a pound on the back end. You know. It, hiring somebody, hiring a consultant, hiring a good architect, even if it's not to design the whole project, but to step in and at least give you some guidance on a package set of plans or something like that, to kind of look at your wall systems, see how that affects your HVAC systems. Look at the site. Are these windows actually going to give you a good view at the site? You know, these are all things that it takes very little time up front to pay attention to, but will give you a, you know, a finished product that's leaps and bounds ahead versus, you know, somebody who just takes this box set of plans with this builder grade set of windows and drops it on the lot because it follows the setback line. Yeah, that was my favorite. I ran into a client, this was several years ago, um, who had bought a house and the house was in a rural setting. And it was clearly built by a, a developer builder who built lots of them but it was designed horizontally on a site and it was meant to be a vertical infill project. So there were no, no windows on the side of the house that it was up on a hill and it overlooked this gorgeous view. And there were literally no windows on that side. And I think it was the South too. It was either the South or the West. It was like the side of the house, you'd want the sunlight on and it was the view side and there were no windows. And you could clearly tell that it was a, a spec set of plans that they just said, okay, I'm going to plunk this down here. Like when you approached the house and you drove in the driveway, you had no idea where to go to find the front door. It was meant to be, probably it wasn't meant to have a garage in the first place, but it was meant that you'd drive in on the side and you'd drive past the house and the garage would be in the back, you know? And so you'd drive mm -hmm. past the front door. So if you were a guest, you'd stop, get out, you'd go to the front door. Well, in this lot, that wasn't the case. And it's always a funny design problem to me. Like when you come to somebody's house, it should be obvious where the front door is. And I'll, I say that, and apparently um, the house that I live in must be super confusing, or this is like a weird Manor thing because our driveway is on the side. There's only one way into our neighborhood. You have to drive past the front of our house. There's a nice flagstone path that leads to my front door and everybody comes to my back door, everybody. You have to go in the screen porch, <laughs> to get to my back door and everybody comes in the back door. I don't, like you have to drive past the front of my house and past the flagstone pathway to come to the front door, but nobody comes that way. It cracks me up. I find it well, that, hilarious. That's, that's, the, that's the fancy entrance and maybe they don't think they can use that unless they have their dress shoes on oh, Maybe, or that's true, that's true. That is a traditional uh, main community uh, thing where nobody ever uses anybody's front door anyway. Like when I go to my yeah, in-law's yeah. house, I go in the back door, you know, like I just. Sometimes I wonder why we even bother putting them on houses I, that we build. It's like nobody's ever going to. 
to walk in this. The only people that's going to come here are going to be the UPS guy the first couple of times till he realizes you use the other Right, door. till he realizes you've never opened that door and the package you left last week is still on the front doorstep because you don't there. go in that door so you didn't know it was there. Thank goodness for, uh, you know, notifications, right? For all these front doors where people <laughs> don't get their packages. Delivered? Where was it delivered? Are you <laughs> sure? sure? Front door, back door, in my garage? Because if you leave your garage door open, they leave it in your garage too, so... But yeah, I think that community aspect is going to really become important. And that extra time that you mentioned in the beginning is going to be something that people start asking for. And I, in some ways, I feel like they're already asking for it and they just don't know they're not getting it. You know, like there's some level of expectation that the building community is providing the best level of service to them. And there's some kind of disconnect between what they know and understand and what is actually being provided, which is part of the reason that even though we have um, semi-customizable plan sets that are available that people could purchase, they come with consultation from me because I don't expect you to know everything. And as a HERS writer, I also want to make sure that all of the really important energy aspects happen because... We say we, we love panelization, but we say with panelization and modular and all that stuff, even with stick built is it's only as good as the contractor putting it together on the site. And so if there's somebody that doesn't understand something and they just don't do it or they ignore it, then something that could be really simple and not an issue in a code built house like fiberglass stuffed in the corner can be a major issue in a high performance house. And if it rains in the corner in the inside of your house, all of a sudden the client is like, what's going on here and whose fault is this now? So um, I think that the spot that uh, it becomes a pinch point a lot of times in those matters is, is often people are up against a schedule. Yeah. Whether or not that's a realistic schedule, we both know that people will impose schedules on themselves that have no bearing in reality other than just some emotional reaction to when they think something should happen. Right. But I think when a lot of these aspects tend to get value engineered out of the whole process because people think that um, I don't have time to look at my solar orientation, or I don't have time to look at uh, two different wall systems, but the time to do that is then you have no second time to do it. It's also, uh, it kind of plays into the, something that we talked about on BS and beer is that we don't let our clients have any say in our envelope. You know, we will design an envelope to meet their expectations of performance, but we are never going to value engineer the quality of our flashings, the quality of our weather resistive barriers, what perm rating products we're using in that wall, what type of insulation we're using in that wall. We don't let them have that conversation um, because you only get that one chance to do it. I am hopeful that the architecture and design community will start to, you know, to start to get on board with that idea because I, I feel like, um, just as was mentioned during BS and beer, when Dan says he puts one person on his crew in charge of air tightness. And like that person is the person that's going to pick up the cock gun at the end of the day where, Oh man, the roofer was here. I got to double check if he put a hole in this or, or that. And they're, they're kind of responsible. Unfortunately in the built environment, I feel like there's a lot of, he said, she said, and no, 
no ownership of it. Like you guys are basically saying, we're taking ownership of the building envelope. And we're saying that this is what we have to do to get it right the first time. And sure, we all try something new in certain ways and you might try a new product or you might do something like that. But you're saying, okay, based on our however many years of experience, we know this is what we need to provide in order to meet your, your target areas where um, there's a lot of bad vibes in the whole, the architect designed this whole thing and then it got put out to bid and it was way too expensive. Like where was the builder involvement, you know, from the beginning so that you were on board, mm -hmm. but then in the same aspect as I say, you know, I don't buy anything. You're the contractor. You buy stuff from from your suppliers. And so you might do a large volume and get great pricing on X product, which is equal to Y product. But I put Y in my drawings. And so now you're either going to budget it based on Y, which is in my drawings, because we've never had this conversation where you could have done X equal performance done just as well. And so I love the design there are great builders who are good at design. There are great architects who understand construction. There are a lot of bad in both ends. You know, <laughs> we have to kind of admit to to all of those things. But I'd like people to get on the same on the same page because even Travis mentioned that a lot of the things that I bring up, which are great ways to have an economic value in a structure, which is a great design from the beginning, smaller square footage, great window placement, isn't something that they can change if they don't come on board until after the fact. You know, the client is now invested in whatever this plan is and they, they can't say, oh, if we just had one less window here, that would, you know, save a lot of money. So I'd love for the design and build community to get on the same page. The sooner you bring everybody on board and get everybody at least having that conversation, it doesn't have to be all at the same time, but as soon as you involve everybody that has any stake in that project being successful in a conversation with one another, the more likely you are to have success. And that's tough. And you know, I, I battle this as somebody who preaches this on, on a regular basis is trying to get people in up front so hey let's plan out exactly where that unit's going to go and where that duct run is going to go so we're not having to chase our tails and figure out some soffit situation later on down the line those are all things that you know that hour or two sitting at a desk with each other and just scratching stuff out with a pencil is going to save you a thousand dollars or more in the field of lost labor and difficulties so it, it pays for itself but it is, it's a real world thing that, you know, it's tough to get everybody together because especially right now, well, not this moment, but on a larger scale, everybody's so busy right now. It's tough for people to take time out and want to put that kind of level of care in, yeah. but it needs to happen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that is going to be the best, you know, push forward for our environment is to start getting people on the table and so it kind of came up in the chat box and it was kind of funny because people say you know what happens when you you don't have a builder or you don't have an architect who's on board with your building science and they're like don't use that builder or don't use that architect and i don't think that that is the right answer um that's that's my, that's my gut reaction to that and it's not totally true and this is also something that i brought up in the bs and beer conversation is, is a lot of times if you get a builder who's at least a halfway conscientious individual that cares about what they do you can explain this stuff and after a little bit of back and forth they're going to get it 
Now, if you have a if you have a builder that's just fighting tooth and nail against these suggestions that you're making, then that's when you ditch the builder. Yeah. Oh, and I absolutely agree with that. If you have somebody who uh, who just decides that they know better than you, and you can tell that they've already checked out and that they're not willing to be participant, um, that's absolutely when when you say, okay, you know what, never mind. Um, but if you come with an open mind. I realize that I don't know everything. You're going to bring things to the table that your crew has done that, and you create this really collaborative process. And at the end, that's often one of the best. Everybody is happy. Learning. You know, the client is happy. The builder is happy. The architect is happy. The whole design team is happy because everybody felt like they were realized and that they were heard. And the things that were most critically important got hit in the long run. You know, like, do I care how such and such goes together? If it's an energy performance detail, absolutely. And I don't care how many times I have to jump up and down and you look at me like, Emily, you're asking me to do what? Um, you know, but at the same time, if there's some way to do it and it's apples to apples, then absolutely, let's do it your way. You've done it this way. You figured it out. Maybe it's something I just never heard of or never thought of before. There's so much value in, in being a part of that collaboration and, and that team. And then everybody feels ownership of it in the end. And you do come out with a, a, a better product. I, I started a new project and um, going into it, we know that the owner has uh, chemical sensitivities. So we, I, I said to the builder, I said, this is going to be the weirdest thing I've ever asked you to do. Cause of course it's out in a rural community. So this is a new builder to me. He's been very open-minded. He said, some of the things that he's doing are already high performance and he just doesn't even know he's doing it yet. Um, but he says to me, you know, I'm going to learn something from this process. And that's all I need to hear, you know, open-mindedness. But I've said, this is going to be the weirdest thing I've ever asked you, but I need a box of trash. I need you to go to your current job site and I need a piece of Romex and I need a piece of Roxel insulation and I need a baggie of cellulose and I need a piece of your two by four lumber because I need to know that this client isn't going to have an issue with them when we put this in the house. And so it's kind of some unconventional testing, but I'm, I'm being proactive about that. And he says, that is probably the weirdest thing that anybody's ever asked me, you know, and it's, but it's fun. You know, he was more than willing yeah. to do it, happy to do it. You know, get, I would have been thrilled. It would have been like a scavenger hunt for me. Like, Ooh, what can I send her over in this mystery box of trash? Exactly. Yeah. And it, you know, it was really exciting for me because this builder is already, they don't use any plywood. Um, I think I, I kind of laugh and I say, you know, he's a lumberjack in the winter time. He goes out, he cuts down his own wood. He mills all of his own wood and then uses it in his projects, which is, you know, farm to table building right there. Right. Um, but, so we've already eliminated any glues or adhesives in any kind of plywoods or, or all of that because we're using board sheathing. We're using boards for flooring. We're using boards for roof sheathing. And that right there is an excellent example of you know, sustainability and cutting out a possible VOC that could affect a homeowner. So um, those things are so much fun because I'm like, oh, you use board sheathing? That's awesome. I wish everybody did that. You know, so here's this one thing Same. that I get pushed back from other builders because they're used to using a, you know, a piece of plywood. And he's like, oh, no, we never build that way. It's so much cheaper and easier for us to do, you know, 
board sheeting. It's it's you see bits and pieces of it up here and then over in Vermont. You know, Bob Swinburne. I see a lot of his projects using you know board sheeting, and it's it, it makes so much sense, especially in a rural setting like this. You know, and I know other builders. You know that will bring a sawmill onto the site, a portable sawmill onto the site the year before they're planning to start construction. And they'll saw the lumber on the site while they're clearing it, making it ready for foundation. And that's the stuff that'll go into being part of the construction of the home. Yeah. You know, that's, not everybody can do that, but no, not everybody so can cool. do that. I, I wish I had those projects. I'd love exactly. To not everybody can do that. But when those projects come up or there's some reason that that makes it easier for you and you say that to me because you came on board while we were doing design, I say, okay, great. I'll plan for sheathing. And oh, by the way, we'll use this kind of membrane because that'll work great with it. And on we move and everybody's happy. And so it's very exciting for me. Um, so we've been talking already for 45 minutes ish or more. And so I hate to cut it short, but um, is there any parting words that you really feel like somebody getting into building science, whether they're a homeowner who's just kind of heard this term and thinks I'm, I'm looking for something better or a builder or architect who, who doesn't have a lot of basis, like what's the, what's the one thing that they should be thinking about or doing or researching? It's easy to get overwhelmed when you start diving into this because there's so much information to know and you feel like you need to absorb it all right now and you can ping pong around between topics i guess the biggest piece of advice i can give somebody is just pick one topic right now that you're really interested into and try and focus on that thing and absorb as much about that thing as you possibly can yeah because you got time to find the the rest of the info later yeah just something that you're passionate about because if you're passionate about it, then you're going to absorb it well and it'll drive you towards the next thing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so much easier for some of us who have just decided that this high performance building science, how, how, whatever greenwashing words you want to use to describe what it is we do. Um, I think that's why it's not as hard of a sell for us because we're all very passionate about it and that gets people hooked. So um, I appreciate you coming on. I foresee you being on the podcast a whole bunch in the future. I would love to hear <laughs> My more uh, specifically about some of the monitors that you're putting in and the types of things that you guys are monitoring on your project. And as we move forward with that being, I think, a focus of green building, ventilation, and indoor air quality what some of the things are that you're doing to kind of change that or monitor that. So be happy to come back. It's always a pleasure to have Ben on the podcast. He is a stand-up guy, and we're lucky to have him here in New England as a builder. If you didn't happen to catch it on Instagram, he submitted his wall section, the double stud wall, uh, for the Sweet 16 wall section smackdown uh, over at BSM Beer Kansas City. I'll also include in the show notes a link to the article that him and Dan Colbert put together for Fine Home Building, and there's also a link on there to the recent webinar that they did talking more about double stud walls. So check out what Ben has been up to. You'll see him on BS and Beer. He's been on some past episodes 
thebsandbeershow.com or the BS and Beer Show on YouTube on our YouTube channel. You can watch previous episodes of the BS and Beer Show. If you're enjoying this podcast, like it, share it, and reach out to us, Emily at matromarch.com to tell us what you'd like to hear about, or if there's a special guest you'd love to have on or a topic that we haven't covered yet that you think would be great information to have. Thanks for joining us again today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.